Welcome, everybody, to the next edition of the American Shoreline Podcast. I am the co-host of the show. My name is Peter Ravella. And I'm Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. And today we are at the Gulf of Mexico Alliance Meeting in Austin, Texas. This is the 2018 Coastal Resilience Team Meeting, the fall meeting. And we've got a special guest with us today, Uh Thank you very much for joining us, Rhonda Price. And I understand you are the committee chairman for Gulf of Mexico Resiliency Team. I am the team chair for the uh, Coastal Resilience Team. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to jumping into it with you. We've got a couple of sponsors we need to thank before we dive in. As always, we want to ta- uh, thank our sponsor, Dune Doctors, out of Pensacola, Florida. This is a Dune Restoration and Consulting uh, firm. They they work all along the Gulf shoreline, so all the way from the Texas shoreline all the way around over to the shoreline there in the Gulf side of Florida. They have you covered. Uh, they do great work. They are a hub vendor, uh, and uh, they're just a great sponsor. We're so happy that they came on board to, to support Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Yep, so if you've got... Uh, a need for dune restoration and dune management with natural native dune plants give them a call frederick barris at dune doctors at dunedoctors.com we'd also like to thank ti coastal services out of wilmington north carolina uh ti coastal services is a just exquisite uh coastal engineering firm they work there along the Carolina Shoreline. If you've listened to uh, Peter Ravella's Local Control podcast with Chris Gibson, yep. uh, you will have you'll know a little bit about the care and responsibility that TI Coastal Services uh, takes with when they approach a project. Yep, and uh, TICoastalServices.com, Chris Gibson, uh, Barrier Island Restoration, Dune Restoration, Ports and Waterways. A boutique firm, special specialty guys, first rate. TICoastalServices.com. All right, Rhonda. Well, it's been a great first day here at the Goma Coastal Resiliency Fall Meeting. And uh, let me just say that it's just whenever we get a group, a room full of coastal professionals together to start talking about and learning about what everybody else is doing, I always find it to be rewarding. Uh, that, after all, was kind of our, our initial reason for bringing this podcast network online was to foster conversations. And already today, uh, we've had uh, a packed agenda. And tell, tell me a little bit about uh, the reason why GOMA gathered this meeting and uh, how, it, how you think the first day went. Sure. Well, um Part of the resilience team, we've been a part of the Gulf Mexico Alliance for now 10 years, and it's hard to believe it's been 10 years. Um, and I've been in it from the very beginning. So I've seen the uh, the evolution of the alliance to where um, it moved from uh, a kind of not having a real regional perspective uh 
for the five Gulf states and after Katrina moved into um, a more focused area looking at not only the ecology but the economic factor as well. And our team was part of the habitat restoration team. And so a lot of the things that were coming out of restoration had um, a resilience component. And at the time we had over 145 just interested in resilience. So that's when we became our own team about 10 years ago. And so... Your own team within GOMA. Within GOMA. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so we try to meet up once a year outside of our all hands and our all hands is where all the teams meet usually around in June and we try to break off just as a team just to work on some of the things that um, some projects that we may have going on we have some GovStar funding that um, is provided through the Gulf of Mexico Alliance and so we like to hear about those projects uh, and it also gives us an opportunity to come together as a team after 10 years uh, we we're more like family than than we are a team so once we get caught up on how's your mom and them then we move on to um, what's going on in your state and so the this meeting gives everyone an opportunity just to catch up regionally on what's going on and to trade ideas and that's kind of got kicked off this afternoon um, with you know one of the presentations that we had and it was I don't know about you but my brain hurt afterwards um, but that that's what our team is here for is to help provide those informed technical um, decisions on projects that maybe a state is considering that other states have done and learn from them um, and some of the pitfalls and warnings and um, just kind of move uh, forward, which is what resilience is about, um, being um, able to adapt to the changing environment. Yeah, and you know, I have to say that in in the first day, I think that we covered a a really, I mean, broad swath of, mm-hmm. of topics. And uh, I mean, job well done. Uh, Goma has, now, I do have a question. Mm-hmm. I did notice when I was looking at the uh, map of Goma, the, the, the logo, that the Goma region, there it is, Peter's holding it up. The Goma region has a... Uh, includes parts of Mexico. Yes, it does. So t- tell me, mm-hmm. tell me about how Goma interfaces with Mexico and and that shoreline. Sure, that component came about um, right before our uh, we finished up our second action plan. We are now working on our third um, action plan. And in the second action plan, there was, um, I guess. realizing that you know the Gulf of Mexico didn't just stop at the five Gulf states that we had to incorporate Mexico as well because not only were things you know flowing down they were flowing up 
and um, and we've actually taken a lot of resilience activities that we accomplished through our team, like the Resilience Index that looks at assessing communities and their um, um, ability um, to become more resilient in coastal hazards. We've actually taken that assessment into several cities in Mexico. So we have worked um, through that second action plan hand in hand with some of the representatives from Mexico, whether that be uh, through the government or mostly through academia. And so this year, um, they're they're still there, but we didn't really, you know, it, it's easier to work on stuff when you have a joint project. And um, not saying that we won't ever work with them again, but um, right there in the initial push through through our second action plan, we we spent a lot of time in Veracruz and and around some of the. Um, local communities and trading ideas, um, trading some scientific research that they were doing and that we were doing, um, going into some of the communities and talking about resilience and sustainability. Um, and so we're, we're still working in Mexico, just not as much. So if you were to uh, uh, describe for, for our listeners who do not live in the Gulf of Mexico and uh, are not familiar with Goma, give the, give the elevator two-minute uh, explanation of what the organization does, how, why it was created, and, and kind of what it's working on today. Mm-hmm. So it was created in 2004 by um, the five Gulf governors at the time, and they felt that there needed to be a regional perspective um, to where they could trade ideas and and talk about some of the issues that each of the states were having that um, you know you've heard the saying that you're better as a whole than you are independent um, and at the time they didn't really have anything to focus on and so it was just kind of a um, an agreement that when we do have something we have a partnership that we can fall back on and in 2005 in August Katrina hit um, and the governor that kind of brought the alliance together was actually Jeb Bush he was governor of Florida at the time um, and after Katrina our governor governor Haley Barber um, kind of brought everyone back together and then we had some issues to work towards and that was having a healthy resilient coast because Katrina not only affected Mississippi uh, affected the other states as well and so that brought everyone together it is a state-led partnership um, which I think is important because that is where the states um, are actually focusing on what they need and we do have a federal work group that we work with, um, NOAA and EPA, uh, USGS, and um, others. Um, right now, the Gulf Alliance has a membership of around 450, 500. So our all-hands meetings at the uh, once a year are, are quite crowded, um, but it gives everyone an opportunity not just to take part in the resilience team, but also in the other five teams as well. Well, you know, I, what I love about this notion of a state-led consortium of professional coastal professionals from all professions, um, gathering together, working together, coordinating policy, 
and projects and funding and strategy uh, is because it's a fundamental recognition that uh, the boundaries that we draw on the land don't make any sense when you get to the edge of the water. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, just like with Mexico, I think the largest temporarily nesting populations in the Gulf of Mexico or in uh, in Mexico on Tamalupas, Red Snapper, there are Gulf populations of species and resources that don't uh, stop at the border. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I love driving from Austin over to to the panhandle of Florida, and I always love going past the sign that says, Welcome to Louisiana and Welcome to Mississippi. But when you're on a boat out in the Gulf of Mexico, there's no sign. And so it doesn't make any sense to... Fish do not know where they they are. They don't know, and the sediment doesn't care what town it's in or what county or what state. And so I think what what you guys do is absolutely essential to any kind of good management uh, philosophy for a water body like the Gulf of Mexico, including all the way down to the Yucatan. so let me say so you've got governor appointed this is a governor formed governor led with special appointees i think you're the representative from the uh, governor of Me- uh, mississippi, mississippi. Uh, office and lead the coastal resiliency team how many teams are there in there, goma there are six teams right now can you peck those oh, off or my is that? goodness i'm gonna try <laughs> just like trivia it is <laughs> um so we have the resilience team we have the restoration team we have an education team hmm. so we felt it important to and we've always had an education team because if we're doing all of the you know science and and research it really is important to have that education mechanism and outreach built in to any type of of project or program that you're doing because you want to take that information and and educate people and use it as outreach. Um, We have a new group this year, Data Monitoring. Hmm. So with all of of this day and age, um, with dealing with coastal restoration um, issues, modeling and, and data have become extremely important. So... Uh, we found that it was necessary to create a data modeling team, and that is what they do. They are um, um, made up of state agencies and academia, um, federal agencies, and they deal with remote sensing or GIS, uh, work in the um, modeling Okay. Aspect of so it. how so Goma, uh, this consortium, working group, cooperation, project uh, planning together. Uh, how are you funded? And I know that you give out grants because Tyler Buckingham wrote a grant to Goma, and I believe it was awarded a few years back. It was. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about tell us about your funding, and do you offer what what's your grant program like? What, tell us about the the money side of it. Well. So through the Gulf Mexico Alliance, we have the Gulf Star Program, and that is where each um, state gives so much money, and we have um, benefactors or sponsors that will give money towards this Gulf Star um, Program. I see. And once a year or or every 18 months, um, we will release a request for proposal. Each team will release a request for proposal based on some of the action items that are within our action plan. So it allows us to actually work Hmm. towards the accomplishments of some of the tasks that are set within our Ah, action plan. To execute that strategy. Exactly. Wonderful. And um, so 
I think we're in our third third project proposal um, and it's been very um, successful and that and we've had several agencies that will go out and state agencies that will get federal awards as well EPA Gulf of Mexico program has Mm -hmm. um, um, a grant fund that they award every year and there is a resilience component and we you know we've received several of those um NOAA has several funding um awards every year NOAA the NIFWF the resiliency fund you've got the restore act uh National Academy of Science right and Mm -hmm. so you guys coordinate project development program development um what are the highest priority issues in front of the Gulf States Uh, as articulated by the Gulf of Mexico Alliance. What is the biggest challenge, do you think, as as an organization, and then within resiliency? I know you can speak to that being the chairman of the resiliency team, but Mm -hmm. uh, organizationally, what's on everybody's mind? Well, I think always um, when people talk about organizational issues, it always comes down to policy and funding. So we're in a – we've – kind of turned the the tide over the last 10 years where um before states um worked towards federal policy and that's how we received our funds was through the priorities that the federal agencies put through and over the last 10 years the gulf mexico alliance has changed that um right now if you look at any of the funding awards that are 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 you know available um they follow closely to some of the priorities that the states have set forward through the action plan and that is the result of a successful gulf of mexico alliance well you know i i'll i'll say it was a pleasure actually writing that grant that was uh that was uh back to do a um a resiliency community resiliency master plan for the city of south padre island Mm -hmm. and um I would love to actually follow back up with them because I, th- I think they've completed the work now and uh, I'd be curious to know what came of it. But, uh, you know, they, they the grant helped fund a series of workshops and um, community stakeholder meetings where they were able to assess um, what needed to be invested. I mean, they were able to basically come up with a project punch list mm-hmm. and, and that then f- brings you into the next kind of phase where you actually are building projects or planning projects more specifically mm-hmm. now when i wrote that that would have been two years ago two or three years ago um was that would you know if that was kind of an area of focus at the time kind of planning and are you is the alliance moving toward actual you know shovels in the ground kind of projects or is, or is it more of a planning orientation well Right now, you know, two years ago, and I, I, I know what you were talking about, um, we did have a grant opportunity to where uh, some cities could take part in the resilience index assessment. And after taking right, part... That's it. After taking part of that assessment, then they were able to look at where their vulnerabilities were, and it may have been in hazard mitigation planning. Um, It may have been stormwater infrastructure. It uh, may have been critical facilities. So where they found that they were most vulnerable, then that's where the opportunity came about to create those plans. And so a lot of planning to 
took place because of those assessments and where they didn't have one before and so it's pro it's an in-depth um um you know project when you're doing it when you're going through the assessment depending on you know the level that you want to get to it could take a couple of hours to do um, but afterwards you can walk away with kind of an idea of where your gaps are and so the next round of funds could fund those gaps and so then after you get your plan done it it seems you know quite obvious that then the next phase would be if you're looking at your stormwater then there comes the infrastructure part whether that be green infrastructure or hard infrastructure yeah you know it it reminds me actually of um for listeners who are who are not in the gulf area um perhaps a, this is this is a bit of a stretch but I'll, i'm going to go here anyway give it a go the uh the the g20 you know the the g20 summit when all these countries get together now the real purpose of the g20 was to provide a body for to basically avoid major international conflict there was a there was a forum for these countries to meet it's bigger than the security uh, con you know the the u.n security council the u.n security mm -hmm. council it's, it's economically it's, focused it's more economically focused and the idea was by pre creating this platform uh these these nations could communicate with each other and head off uh disaster and mm -hmm. and in the event that there was something coming there would there was a place for the conversation to happen and and there were plans on the books and there was already momentum in place now mind you in the gulf of mexico it's different but this is a hurricane area and lots of money comes in to this region because in the wake of storms and uh what you and and I would be you know I was not professionally involved during the Katrina era, but I imagine that was such a dramatic and multi-jurisdictional event mm -hmm. that have that it, there was a need that all of a sudden it necessitated a need for a broader regional approach, and in a way, Goma is that kind of G20 type body. It, it's a place where we can plan, talk, share plans across state boundaries, across regional boundaries. Local governments are encouraged to do their planning. So when something does happen and when funds do start to flow in, we are kind of on the same page. At least that is kind of the idea is that the is that the idea that sounds that, like a pretty good description that that is the idea although you know i don't know if that was the intent when it was created but it certainly has evolved into that and i think that speaks to um why the alliance has has become so successful is because it gives that opportunity we know that hurricanes mm -hmm. you know are going to hit somewhere um and we know that you know there'll be flooding events and so what we are trying to do is um, to, to make our communities more adaptable and more sustainable. Right. And when you ask me what one of the, you know, the hurdles for the resilience team, and of course we always go back to coastal hazards and that being insurance. Right. Well, I do think, I do want to talk about insurance. Are you comfortable diving into insurance? I, I do want to ask one question. Mm -hmm. You know, resiliency is a big t uh, professional topic in coastal discussions, whether it's at ASBPA or at GOMA or at the Coastal uh, Protection Resource Authority, uh, you know, in Louisiana, everybody's talking about it. The basic, tell us what the basic notion is. What do we, tr what is, 
if you were trying to describe it to your mother, <laughs> and she that I love this, what did, if you were telling your mom, what do you do and what is this resiliency business really about? What would you tell her? <laughs> after she was done she, asking you how everything was and yeah. the kids and the whatnot but you know <laughs> she's probably heard me complain more than yeah. <laughs> she could probably tell you she probably could we should call her up <laughs> yeah you should call her up um you know and i it's funny because when i when i first started and um uh i've been gosh i've been around since 97 and that was painful to say Mm -hmm. yeah Um, doesn't show and uh, well thank you (laughs) um and so when i first started we've gone through so many you know buzzwords so i started out and we were calling it smart growth and then we moved on to something else and and then resilience came along you know after katrina um and then at that time we were focusing on the resilience for our team was how do you adapt and become sustainable to coastal hazards Mm. and natural and man-made hazards and Mm. so it's funny i've even seen resilience evolve from there okay so you know when when i first started we were working with communities and then um the the oil spill happened so then we were faced with some restoration issues whether that be erosion or or marshes marshes and and subsidence mm -hmm. and um affecting our fisheries um and now resilience seems to take on another component to where these restoration projects that they're planning how resilient are those restoration projects Mm. and those restoration projects how resilient do they make those communities yeah and so it really become and then you have the economic resilience built in behind that how do you sustain the economic horsepower of a town after it's been i can't remember the guy that we talked to in louisiana it was the director it was with with hud and worked on the resiliency program in louisiana explained it to me this way he said resiliency is the capacity to get up off the mat after we've been hit sooner mm-hmm. that's not bad and the the there's something you know this is worth thinking through because the Gulf of Mexico shoreline. That would be Pat Forbes. Pat Forbes. What a great interview that was. You go back and listen to the interview with Pat Forbes, who's, who was the head of the resiliency program for Louisiana. but On the local control podcast. On the local control podcast. But um, it's a low-lying coastline, barrier islands and marshes, huge storms that come and go. I would say the bookends for the storms, the first major hurricane of the Alliance's future was probably Katrina, mm-hmm. which absolutely was massive and then this year we had michael that Mm -hmm. hit in the alliance's territory was the hurricane of record this year in the gulf of mexico territory and a different storm very intense i mean part of this and i want to say this on behalf of listeners from around the country i think there's a part of it that people look at this and say there really isn't anything you're going to do to make michael less destructive I, I don't know. I mean, can you – is resiliency a reasonable expectation and within what realm of of event? I mean, obviously mm-hmm. there's a storm that's big enough it 
But the, but it does make a difference. I do think it does make a difference. Sure. I mean, just because you have made your community more resilient doesn't necessarily mean hurricanes are going to go, oh, I'm sorry, I can't go there because you're resilient. Right. Um, we know that, you know, we've dealt with them for hundreds of years, you know, thousands of years. I mean, we've yeah. only, Mississippi's only, you know, for us, we're celebrating 201. Okay. 201. Um, but I think if we if we bow down to that mentality of we're always going to have hurricanes, um, then we we do run the risk. Yeah. And I think as long as we go in and and try try to to use the um, up to date building standards and building codes. Right. Um, and whether that be you know water or wind. Um, it can be done. It, it, it can be done. I'm, I'm not a fan of the futility argument, what I call the futility argument. When you get close to major bodies of water, and particularly in hurricane territory, people just throw up their hands and go, well, I guess can't do anything about that. We sat through this morning the discussion from uh, the f- group of folks who were working on Fortified, mm-hmm. which is the Insurance Institute's recommended standards for coastal construction and it was compelling, and I can and, and you look at it, and I thought, wow, that doesn't look that hard to do. This is actually could be incorporated. It really makes a difference. And they had all those cool videos of the houses blowing apart. Unless you put this stuff together in a certain way, right. it can be made better. I think that's the thing. Mm-hmm. I think everyone should understand. Resiliency may not. We're not talking about eliminating harm to Risk. communities. We mm-hmm. that's not possible. But. We can be, when you said smart building, is that what it used to be mm-hmm. called? I would say less stupid. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Can we not put things in the most vulnerable places? Can we not build them in ways that are highly vulnerable, that are high risk to property and people? Can we build the better standards? Mm-hmm. Can we use the environment, natural resources, oyster reefs and marshes and all of that to, to make this more t- workable? Mm-hmm. I think that's eminently sensible. I don't think there's anything wrong with that as a strategy, even though it's a little bit hard. It's a little squishy, you know? I don't know, Tyler. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I of course, agree. And, you know, when you – when the futility argument, of course, is silly because we – we overcome the futility argument every day of our lives when we get into a car and when we we live the modern yeah. life and and as we've said many times on this on this podcast uh the the land water interface is a highly manipulated and heavily man made and and man influenced space uh and the same uh the same goes for the way that we treat, you know, we, we create a regulatory framework as well that overlays on top of how we manage these spaces. And if we're smart and if we think ahead and we take an act, I mean, this is why I think the, the gathering of data is so important. I mean, mm-hmm. the one of the things in that fortified presentation that was really profound was watching the actual wind tunnel testing of houses get blown apart. Mm-hmm. At, at various angles and, and like the, okay in this house they didn't use this particular type of bracketing on the roof and the roof 
blows off. <laughs> That's convincing. I, if I owned a house, I'm going to bracket the roof on. I'm going to follow the fortified thing because I saw the video and it's. I'm convinced. I'm that that is data. No that is data that I'm going to take to the bank with me, mm-hmm. um, and that's data that I think cities and FEMA and and you know, resi- as a resilient community, if you're planning, you want to adopt those requirements. I think it's just, I think it kind of becomes common sense once you have the data, once you have the education right. component out there. Uh, you know, it costs a little bit more money. I guess is would be the downside. Yeah, and it, when you when you. How often are you discouraged and how optimistic are you after doing uh, working on resiliency on the Gulf Coast for as long as you have? What's your mm. professional point of view at this stage of the game? Well, I think you go through various stages every day of being yeah. disappointed and excited. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, you know, I don't want to say it's a constant battle, but it uh, certainly keeps you on your toes. And it is something that, um, you know, the old saying if it's you know you fight for something that that you find worth in and um and we all love to live on the coast um and we you know and we should be afforded that right and i think that having um you know legislation put in that um helps um create those those fortified programs like they have in in alabama and Mm -hmm. mississippi has that same legislation however we do not have um the the program that will give you the the discount that that alabama has uh, wind insurance or flood insurance discounts mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think that's that's the big difference and it is um you know if after katrina there was a lot of you know where there is um, adversity there is you know the possibility to improve and um so during you know after katrina we lost everything yeah and um and so it, it did provide us a lot of opportunity to take those increased right. you know building standards and and fortified um components and and then work them into our communities and build um you know smarter yeah to a better level Mm -hmm. and you know forgive me i'm not going to remember this right but in the post-hurricane storyline of course there's a lot of focus on new orleans but the louisiana i mean the mississippi and alabama impacts in gulf shores and was pascagoula right is that Mm -hmm. where a storm surge plus 30 feet quarter mile half a mile inland it was just stunning what happened in that storm it was if you were ever looking over a flyover it it looked like i had someone you know compare it to it looked like um the hand of god came through and cleared out a chessboard Mm. wow that there was really nothing left from hancock county to just about jackson county wow and it's it's you know it was just spooky because i drove highway 90 every day to go to work Hmm. and when we were there doing our assessments and and um, working through the recovery part of it um all your landmarks were gone so i ended up going a lot further down the road than i ever intended because um i didn't know where i was and it was um it was it was it was sad and um, something that, you know, no community should have to go through at that right. scale. Well, 
you know, I think the interesting thing for me is, is, and I think this is also a perspective that is more common uh, with people who are not familiar with what it's like to be in a hurricane territory or a mm-hmm. hurricane area, is, you know, there's this thing, well, why don't you just... You know, why don't you just move? What are we doing? And and that kind of simplistic. And I, I I'm being critical of that. I well, we all can't move everywhere. I mean, we could run from wildfire fires in California. We could run from tornadoes in Kansas, mm-hmm. um, snowstorms. I mean, we only have so much land that we call the states to run to. And you know, that's what the resilience theory is really about. Is we know we're going to be present on the shoreline. They're and as Warren Pilkey, God bless him, I want to talk to him on the phone in the Center for Developed Shorelines. I really want to speak to them. I know they strongly advocate uh, for a less risky uh, presence on the shoreline, which uh, is the, the retreat notion. But we haven't figured out in America legally how to dispossess people of the private property that they own or to pay the tab to pick up houses or destroy houses mm-hmm. and landfill them and haul them off. We just haven't done that on a large scale. And as much as I don't disagree with the general common sense notion of, you know what, we shouldn't live where it's risky, we should be, you know, we have to live in the real, real world where people's livelihoods, where our industry, where mm-hmm. our shipping and, all, and fishing and these communities human beings have lived on the edge of the ocean from the beginning and i can't mm-hmm. you know i don't know what do you i'm an archaeologist do you hear that well i'm an archaeologist by trade so um you know when you're looking you can already tell where the water has started to retreat or or the the land is retreating um because of you know artifacts that you find in the water that was once you know on land and so we we've lived in a changing environment that's just the reality of it um after katrina we did have a buyout program for um communities in low-lying areas that that wanted to to sell um how did that go tell us about that a little bit well it it you know there were some people that that were i'm done you know um and then well, we didn't get the money for for the rest of it um and then by that time the mentality had changed because once you start buying out sections of communities then you lose your heritage and then there's your culture that goes with that and so people became um you know very um they became advocates for property rights that um you know my grandfather's been here my you know great grandfather so there was a vested uh love to stay yeah roots and exactly roots and identity yeah and i think you know and i think that's that is goes a long way to protecting um who we are culturally and and our heritage um you know people will live on the coast and if we give them the opportunity to to build smarter, um, have you know a better opportunity for insurance, um, and then let them make the choice. You know, I, I think that's really important, Rhonda. And uh, this is a this is a theme that uh, we circle back on whenever we're talking about coastal development and communities in particular, and and also the transformation of communities on the shoreline. 
But uh, one of the things that I think is really important is coastal residents, people who live in the coastal space and uh, uh, take part in the coastal uh, coastal living, uh, are present for the changes at, that are happening on the coast. They, they are a stakeholder in that game. Mm-hmm. And uh, that can be a tremendous... Th- these are people who become advocates. These are people that understand, hey, we got to change this policy, and they'll go and march to their state capital and make it happen because they see the impact of, of, of you know, tr- straws going into the water or you name it. Uh, that's why we have two advocate, full-blown advocacy shows on this network, is because there's people that live and and are are in those coastal communities are invested in a way that the rest of us are just not. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a flip side here too, in that um, the coastal space is a rapidly trans, cha- you know, changes rapidly, changes geologically rapidly. Uh, it also changes economically very rapidly in a community that could be blue collar and have a heritage of being kind of a working class beach town can with the snap of a finger turn into a uh, a strand of high rises and condos with ownership not that does not live there and that has a very different that group will have a very different way of governing itself it'll have different priorities it will it will want something else out of the space and i I, i'm just talking about basically residential we're not even talking about you know heavy industry that Mm -hmm. that utilizes the shoreline or or you know the fishery uh industry so uh my point is is that these these communities do foster a heritage and a culture and a hopefully a deep sense of respect and care caring for the space and i think that that's kind of i mean at the heart of why people choose to live in a in the high risk environment of the of the of the beach it's it's part of it is that deeper draw into this like spiritual metaphysical realm of the shore it's powerful mm-hmm. if you've ever seen a uh, a red sunset in january that's all you need to know <laughs> you know it, it's beautiful yeah. and and just um um driving along the beach or or in you know kayaking up one of the the rivers um you just don't see that everywhere and you know people are willing to take that risk to live in in harmony and they will they will take those necessary precautions and um you know when you you come to the coast and you will find that um you know there there's a lot of respect there um, they they care about where they live and they care about the environment and the natural resources that are there, and um, they in turn you know are the biz- biggest advocates um, that the the coastal area has. Indeed, and uh, that is a beautiful sentiment, and I, I think it's it captures something that you hear all around the American shoreline is there is an emotional and spiritual uh, component to this geography mm-hmm. is what i call it and it uh it's very rich and it's very personal in how mm-hmm. people understand that and how they experience that um it leads me to ask you are you were you a coastal native and from where do you hail and tell us your story about your connection how did you become 
the team leader <laughs> of the resiliency team for the Gulf of Mexico. What's your personal uh, journey to this particular subject matter? Well, that's a roundabout question. Well, it is. Like, it doesn't, could be, there's a short and a long version, I'm sure. There, yeah, there take your is. Pick. There is. There is. Um, well, I grew up in um, Pearl River County, which is one of the six coastal counties. And um, then when I married, I moved to the coast. Um, so I've been, um, I guess, a coastal girl since... 95 um and with that you know i um it was beautiful we lived right there on the water um you, when i talk about those sunsets and it was something that um you just fall in love with um and how i you know i started with with nasa and worked through the earth science program with the archaeology um group and with remote sensing in GIS um, and at that time we were looking for you know pyramids in Guatemala which was you know a long stretch from where I am right now and then um, after school I became a flight attendant and so I was um, on um, uh, Senator Dole's presidential campaign in 96 and uh, that was one adventure so after that, um, my old director from NASA became the executive director for the Department of Marine Resources, and they were wanting to start a GIS and remote sensing um, program. And so he brought me over, and just through the you know evolution of of the DMR and my programs, I found myself leading the the resilience team. Well, it's uh, it's not it's not totally dissimilar to to how I uh, found uh, working on the coast, and uh, you know we all kind of meander our way through. And when you do encounter a really powerful space, I mean, it just sucks you in. It just sucks you in, and it it really can inspire. Uh, uh, it, I mean, it's it, it, it's really a privilege to be able to to work in a space that is so it is. powerful and meaningful to so many people. In my other job, I'm director of the Mississippi Gulf Coast National Heritage Area, so heritage and resilience kind of goes hand in hand. And um, uh, we we did a, a video, opening video for our heritage area on our website, and it kind of gives you the the overview the the virtual tour of of the coast and the heritage and and the resilience that you find when you when you visit our our six coastal counties in mississippi and i think that could be resonated with across the five gulf states and it you know it talks about you know if you've the best book you've ever read or the best sunset you've ever seen then you automatically relate that to a coastal event Absolutely. Um, Peter, do you have any other questions for Rhonda? Well, I, Rhonda, I want to thank you for taking the time and giving us an introduction to the uh, Gulf of Mexico Alliance uh, resiliency team. Uh, appreciate your time. We'll be here tomorrow at mm-hmm. the team uh, meeting and look forward to talking with other uh, members of the Gulf of Mexico Alliance community. Um, and I'll tell you one thing I got to put a plug in for is uh, Rob Nixon, who hosts the Next Well podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, 
is going to have the Pulitzer Prize winning author of the Gulf of Mexico book that just won the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction writing, uh, Jack Davis, on the podcast. And this is a fascinating book. It should be required reading for Mm -hmm. everybody at goma uh and everybody on the gulf of mexico and everyone across the american shoreline he's a florida historian pulitzer prize winner can't wait to hear rob's interview uh and keep up uh, we'd love to keep up with you Rhonda. thank you so much so much and uh look forward to learning more about the gulf of mexico alliance